Oh, um, I got a new suit. And uh, a suit is just so that you know, because this may be something that looks very foreign to you, but a suit is something that men used to wear when they wanted to dress up. And, uh, and that's what this is, a suit. So it's so new that this morning in the dark while I was before Shelley woke up and she was still asleep, I was in the dim light trying to cut all the tags off of it. And as I entered the worship center, um, it wasn't my zipper that was down, but the flap in the back still had that kind of crisscross stitching that holds it together. So I just want to thank all my friends for helping me get ready for this moment. This is the first Sunday of Advent. Advent is a Latin word. It sounds pretty much like Latin when we say it. It uh, refers to the coming or the arrival of a notable person, event, or thing. The coming or arrival of a notable person, event, or thing an advent. To Christians, to us, there is no more notable person or event than the arrival of Jesus, the Messiah, anticipated in the prophecies of the Old Testament prophets. Today, the church uses the word in three ways. So I'm going to just share those with you quickly. The first I've already mentioned, Advent refers to the coming of Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ. That's what the word Christ means, Messiah. But it sees the whole of Jesus' ministry to bring salvation, to come to earth, be born, bring salvation, through his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. So we're at the front of the advent this morning. The second way in which Christians use the word advent today is to anticipate, and we do this now because we celebrate the first advent, because we also use the word advent of the return of Jesus Christ, which we anticipate, the second advent, when Christ will return visibly and bodily to receive the church and judge the nations. And then there's a third way in which we use the word advent, and they're all intertwined. They overlap, but there are some distinctions, and I don't want you to be confused. We use advent for this Christmas season. The four Sundays that lead up to Christmas initiate the Advent season in which we celebrate Christ's first coming to earth and especially his birth. So Advent, the very nature of the word Advent, 
as it was used outside of sacred things and even before Christ, had to do with anticipation and expectation and preparation, especially when you think of a noble person, event, or thing that is expected to arrive. And with that in mind, I want us to think, am I ready for Christmas? Am I prepared? An acquaintance of mine said this week, we're entering that magical part of the year where advertisers try to convince us it's normal for people to exchange matching Lexuses at Christmas. With those kinds of material expectations, it's hard for grown-ups, harder for children, to focus on the real meaning of Advent. This Advent season, since we have full four Sundays, I thought it would be meaningful to us to return to the first Advent and feature especially what the four gospel writers, the four evangelists, tell us about Jesus' arrival, especially as it is foretold through prophecy and the way each gospel writer connects Jesus to the anticipation of his coming. And so this morning, we're going to be in Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 15. I'm going to read it to us. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed in hair, camel's hair, and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptized you in water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. When he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven came, 
You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. After Malachi, there was no prophet for four centuries. That silence is broken by John. He is God's prophet. He is the expected Elijah of the prophet Malachi, chapters 3 and 4. He is the voice of Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 5, which Isaiah hears from God and reports in these words, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway from our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall shall see it together. The Lord has spoken. John comes, and his message is clear. People, get ready. People, get ready. After 400 years of silence, he is the great Elijah. That prophet who was going to precede God's greater redemptive work, which Isaiah tells us about in chapters 40 through 55. And in that, he tells us that God's going to do an even greater redemptive work than he did in the Exodus. Just as we, uh, as believers, look back on the death and resurrection of Jesus, Israel commemorated the great redemptive act of God in the Exodus. When he brought them, he delivered them out of bondage, the bondage of Egypt. And he made them his people in the wilderness and then brought them into a promised land. 
That's why all of the wilderness imagery and the Exodus imagery is used in those many chapters of Isaiah. And there God speaks to the prophet through the prophet saying, a greater work, something you've never seen, I'm going to do. And that is what John the Baptist is announcing. That's the advent, the coming, that he is preparing the people's hearts to receive. He baptizes with water, but he says one greater. Now, this isn't just, this is John the Baptist, but this is, if you will, the awaited Elijah speaking. That representative, the prophet of prophets, if you will. And he says, one greater than me. And he says, I'm not even worthy to untie the thongs of his sandals, which is the most slavish kind of work. He says, I'm not even worthy to do a slave's job because of his exalted person. It's him, he says, that I am pointing you to when I say, people, get ready. Get ready. And he tells them three things that I want us to see. Prepare. Behold. And enter in. Those are the three things that Mark draws our attention to. There's a lot here, but that's what we're going to look at this morning. And I think they're pretty notable. In verses 2 through 8, we have a description of John's ministry. And basically the focus, as I've said, is to prepare. He is engaging people to come out into these remote, and it's called a wilderness, um, generally places that are not inhabitable because you can't grow anything there. And so these are remoter areas, and that is where John is, and the people are coming from the entire region of Judea and the great city of Jerusalem. And there John is calling them into the water, but he's preparing their hearts for this because he wants them to know that this baptism, this action, is an expression of repentance. And the people are actually confessing as they come because they are turning to God. And that's the Old Testament notion of repentance, turn to God. Sometimes in our modern thinking, and I'm I'm drawing even on my own experience here as a a young guy, Um, sometimes I repented uh, because I I wanted to kind of you know, take care of the books. It was a bookkeeping thing. You know, I had to get, I got, had to acknowledge those things. That was my notion of repentance. It's kind of a law-keeping, bookkeeping. That's not really what it's all about. It's about turning to God. That's the motivation. That's the draw. 
And when we turn to him, then we begin to shed these things. Because in the light of who he is, his heart, his love, his goodness, his justice, his impartiality, he who is our creator, he who created everything, created you, and treasures you and values you. He wants to draw you to himself. Everything in the his story is all about God drawing a people to himself. I don't want us to lose sight of that when we think of preparing our hearts. It's not about bookkeeping. It's about drawing and turning and coming close to God and realizing that he is the true source, fulfillment, and satisfaction of all of your desires. It's not Alexis. It's not all the material things. And that is so hard for us to see and understand because in our American Christmas, our American culture, it's not at all about drawing near to God through Jesus Christ. It's about fun and things and the excitement of one big party, as it were, where family and friends are drawn together. Would you turn to God? You'll have to turn away from some things. Sin deadens us to the voice, the presence, and the leading of God. It deadens us. And so if we would turn to God, we have to set ourselves aside and seek him. And he will re reveal himself to you this Advent. He will show himself to you in ways that perhaps you've forgotten. A famous rabbi walking with some students asked, uh, was asked by his students, uh, when should a man repent? And the rabbi replied, you should repent on the last day of your life. You should be sure to repent on the last day of your life. And of course the students began to protest. Uh, how can we know whether this day is the last day of our lives? And the famous rabbi smiled and he said uh, the answer to that problem is very simple. Repent now. Repent now. Turn to the Lord. It's not about bookkeeping. It's about deepening your dependence, your relationship with God himself. Prepare to get ready. Behold to get ready. In verses 9 through 11, John is seen in baptizing. And it makes me wonder, who did John expect? I mean, he didn't really know perhaps whom to expect 
Maybe he expected based on various strains of prophecy, some we even see, for example, in Mary's song in Luke. But he may have expected God himself in person to show up. Maybe he expected the Messiah. Maybe he expected both. But it's Jesus who got in line, who came with the people, which I think to be a very moving thing, that, that Jesus should identify so fully with us that he, uh, he comes with the crowds who are confessing their sins. You'll note in Mark that Jesus does not is not described as confessing sin, but he is right there among them. I don't know, I know how I would feel. I'd want to elbow somebody and say, I just want you to know I'm not really a sinner. I'm just here fulfilling my responsibility as Messiah. But Jesus didn't seem to bother with that. He was more concerned to fully identify with what God was doing. And when he comes up out of the water, we're told that the heavens are parted. They're they're like a veil ripped. In the Gospel of John, John the baptizer witnesses this, although it's not specifically mentioned here. What is most important is that Jesus hears the words that are uttered. You are my beloved son. In you, I am most pleased. You are my beloved son. In you, I am most pleased. Those words have a backstory going all the way back to Abraham and Isaac in Genesis chapter 22. In verses 2, 12, and 16, his one and only son is the very word beloved, which is used here. It also has a rich history, not just with Abraham, but with the Davidic kingship with David himself in Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. In fact, it is thought that at times annually, or when every king was inaugurated, that king, because of his special relation between the people and God and his duty to do the things of God for the sake of the people, that those words were actually uttered over the king. You are my beloved son. And certainly, it is seen in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1, of the coming Messiah, better known as the suffering servant. Not so much a triumphant king, but the Messiah as a humble servant of the Lord, the suffering servant of the Lord. And he too is called the beloved in whom God is well pleased. And so these words are quite dramatic as they are uttered by God himself at his baptism. In a way, the Christian gospel could be summed up in this point. When God looks at you, 
you, a baptized believer, the living God says to you what he said to Jesus. You are my child, my beloved child. In you I am most pleased. God sees us now as we are, not in ourselves, but as we are in Christ, as we are in the Messiah, as we are in Jesus. That may seem impossible to us, but it's true. God looks at us and says, you are my dear child. I'm delighted in you. I just want to pause a moment encourage you to try and hear those words. Hear your own name at the start. Reflect quietly on God saying that to you, both at your baptism and every day of your life. You are my child. I am so very, very delighted. I am so very pleased in you. That status is ours in Christ. How can this come about? Well, a very profound reason, as I said, Jesus is the Messiah, and he represents his people. And what is true of him is true of you. And this is the meaning of Advent. And it's really the meaning of behold. It comes about, and to show it all would require us to to delve into the entire life and ministry, death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. But it really is the essence of the gospel. And it is the essence of our reading and hearing of the gospel. And it is the importance of how we think about the arrival of Jesus the Christ. You see, this is a different reality. And living in this way is living by a different reality. Just as a new reality was opened at the baptism of Jesus, much of our Christian walk, much of our Christian life is learning to live in this new reality, this different truth that God's eye view of us is revealed to us in Jesus Christ. You are my very loved child. In you, I am most delighted. Sometimes we see it in decisive moments. Sometimes we live it by faith. Just yesterday, I got a call. Oh, wait, I called him. It just happened to be that we were talking on the phone. He reminded me that he owed me a little money that I had lent him. He says, hey, I've, I've got that. I'd like to come right over if I might. I said, sure. 
And uh, he drove over to where I was, and I went out to meet him. We were standing. This was about 9 in the morning, so it was a little brisk. And we were standing there. I gave him a big hug. He gave me a big hug. We visited a few moments, and uh, then he said, would you pray for us? And I took his hand, and we stood there in the parking lot, in the open, on this brisk morning, holding hands and praying together. And I thought, this is a decisive thing of God. Because the man whose hand I held, not even a year ago, would not have entered this church. Would have done, had very little to do with other believers. His view of Christ was shaped by some unchristian Christians, I guess you could say, if that makes any sense. And he was angry at God and his people. And here we were, he asks me to pray and we're praying, and I'm thinking, what a miraculous moment created by God. The triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Even as we see them all present at the baptism of Jesus, there are those decisive moments in your life if you have eyes to see them. But if sin, that is, that selfishness that just wants to gorge ourselves on everything me and it's all about me and me and me and frustrations and difficult circumstances and hardships and not getting what we want and when people don't, you know, uh, cooperate with us and we aren't getting our dreams come true and on and on it goes. And you know what? We can come to church in that state. We can be a person of that kind of disposition and attitude and we can sit right here and listen to it and we feel so far away from God. And we wonder where he is in our lives because we're not open. We can't see anymore. We can't hear his whisper. We don't anticipate those decisive moments because we haven't lived by faith in between them. And when we don't live by faith in between them, then we aren't living in the kind of faith in which God can move in our lives and create decisive moments. In our life, and in the lives of the people that we are interconnected with, that we have an influence upon, their attitudes, their outlook, their perspective is shaped or influenced by us, whether they're a believer or not. Their knowledge of God, his love, his forgiveness, his mercy. What kind of picture do Christians in America give to the world of this wonderful advent, this gospel of Jesus Christ. We can easily drift along as Christians of that nature. We don't have to change at all. There doesn't have to be turning to God. Turning to God should be something almost like the air we breathe, because it's about the life of our Christian walk. 
It's about the life of our vitality. Paul called it spiritual breathing in a sense. The very word that's used of the third person of the Trinity is spirit, which means breath or wind. I got a little carried away there off on a tangent. I'm a, when I'm preaching like that, I'm really preaching to myself. John, we need to preach to ourselves throughout the day and throughout the week. We need to remind ourselves of these great different truths, this great different reality that we talk about that we read in the pages of the Bible, that we know in our heart. We knew when we turned our lives to him in the first place and called him Lord the first time, that witness of the Spirit, that we are his children. That is a special, most intimate and precious thing that we need to know, not just here and there, but every day. And the third thing is to enter in, in verses 14 and 15, after John is arrested. I want to impress upon your thinking when you think about the advent of Jesus Christ that John is the last prophet in the sense of God's work when we make a distinction between the Old Testament and the New Testament or the First Testament and the Last Testament. He's the last prophet. And after he's arrested, Jesus initiates his public ministry. He says, the time is fulfilled. In other words, what has been foretold has arrived. He says, the kingdom of God is at hand. In other words, you can enter in. It's not like a spaceship. It's here but it calls us to do something. It calls us to enter in. You could imagine the kingdom as a castle, but you'll never know what it's like to be within that castle unless you enter it. That castle is here. The reign of the Lord is here, and he's expressing it in us. He's expressing it through his power in us, that spirit power, which we saw had descended upon Jesus, drove him out into the wilderness, and now he, he's compelled, and his ministry begins under the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says, repent. He carries on that message, turn to God. And then he says something very interesting. He says, believe in the good news. That's how you enter in. You believe in it. He says, I bring you good news. Believe it. And you know what happens after this? In verse 16 and 17 and 18, Jesus begins to call people. He says, you. 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 You, follow me. 
He's still saying that today. He's saying that now. Follow me. Don't wait for someone else. You don't, I'm all you need. I'm all you'll want. And when they know me that way and follow me, and you know me that way and follow me, and they know me that way and follow me, we'll all be in this together. People, get ready. Prepare. Behold. Enter in. Believe. I don't know where you are with God this morning. Thursday at uh, 2.30, I was uh, trying to pack up my things and, and leave the office a bit early. I needed to go... Uh, joined Shelly. Her mom, Naomi, was having a difficult time. Um, hospice had been called in some time ago, and we were keeping vigil for several weeks. We didn't know when. We knew it was coming, death, but we didn't know when. And we always wanted another day. Things just kept calling me back, calling me back. Finally, I pulled away about 2.57, and uh, as I was leaving the parking lot, I texted Shelly. See, I was still in the parking lot. I wasn't out on the road. While I was still in the parking lot, I texted Shelly, and I said, how's your mom? I'm on my way. Let me know. And then I got out on Cherry Lane, and I was coming up to Lover's Lane, and I got a text back that said, I think my mom just died. And I drove to her house. And there her husband was at her side, and so was Shelley. And Death is sobering. You know, you think about it in, in anticipation of it, but even when it comes, it... Uh, it catches you off guard. And one of the most powerful things about a memorial, a funeral, is that at that moment there's a group of people that were all interconnected by this one life. And in that one life, all of a sudden everybody is sobered in a way that they, as a group, because of their interconnection, will never be sobered that way again. And it is a, a strong shot of reality. Later, on that same Thursday, and many of you don't know Jason Neese, but maybe more do. Jason Neese was, for many years here at Grace, uh, just after I came, Jason came to join us, and, and he was uh, our high school pastor, and then he was responsible for all of our student ministries. He and his wife, Britton, all of his children were born while they were here. They are very dear to us. Britton is 42, 42. My mom was 45. That's very young to me. It was young to me even when I was younger than that. When I was 20 and my mom was dying. 
and Britain has fought for several years. Last year at the Christmas women's luncheon, if I'm not mistaken, she spoke to us about what God was doing in her life. She died that night, that Thursday night at 10.30. Two of the dearest women in my life. This Advent mean, means everything to them. Because their deaths are not death, but an Advent. An Advent that's shaped by the reality of what Jesus did for us. And it is the actual consummation and realization of that Advent in all of its fullness that is theirs. So for those of us that know things like this, loved ones who have loved us all they could love us, and then God has just called them into his presence, this is a part of a great advent, the advent of God. It was death and life that inaugurated the advent of advents that we celebrate this morning in the bread and the cup. Sometimes we think death should be alien to us. And talking about all the implications, theological implications of death in relation to the Bible, I'm not going to take the time to talk about that. But that's what's represented in this bread and this cup. He who had no sin to confess. He who God parted the sky, the dove descended, the, the spirit like a dove descended. And the Father spoke, you are my beloved child. In you I am most pleased. This is what we remember when we take this bread and this cup. His death and the new covenant, which could only be accomplished not just through his death, but through his resurrection. Let's take some few moments to pray. Draw near to the Lord. If you have something to confess, confess it to him, that you might be welcomed. Realize that that stuff is just an obstacle, and that's why he wants you to shed it. Turn to him and let him draw you to his breast this morning.